Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here, Brad. Brad, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I reached out to you to talk about the JFK topic because I saw you did some work on it. Can you take me down the journey that is the JFK topic for you? Like, when did you get started? Why did you write a book on it? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. It was an honor to be contacted by you. Um, the Kennedy thing, I, I initially started off in high school. I was, I was uh, studying the murder of John Lennon. And my dad was in the Air Force. He was a flight line supervisor. And my dad had always reinforced to me, you'd be amazed what you can do with the telephone. I never put much stock in that until I started interviewing people related to the John Lennon shooting, including the doctor who did open cardiac massage. He's holding this beetle heart in his hand. And then suddenly in 1992, uh, it, I, I took this right-hand turn and, and ended up uh, on the Kennedys matter. And I started off by reading the Warren Report. I thought, well, that's probably the best place to start. And then I went to Rush to Judgment because I'd heard that that was sort of the defense brief, sort of the antithesis of the Warren Report. From there, I went to Six Seconds in Dallas, which is incredibly hard to get your hands on, but I, I managed to do that. Um, and I started calling Dealey Plaza eyewitness was well let me back up the first eyewitness that I got on the phone was completely by accident um, I called what was then the JFK assassination information center in Dallas which was defunct shortly thereafter um, but I called there because I wanted a print of the Mormon photo because I was looking at the Mormon photo and I thought you know if there is another gun involved it's in this picture. It's got to be in this picture somewhere. I'd like to get a really good quality print of this instead of something out cut out of Newsweek or whatever. And uh, they said, well, we can't help you with that. You need to call Gary Mack over KXAS in Fort Worth. So I called Gary Mack, who I knew who he was because he'd made an appearance in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, as you know. And I, I get Mr. Mack on the phone. And he says, well, we can't get you the, the uh, Mormon photo because of what it may or may not contain. There's some possible litigation going on. If you just want pictures, why don't you call Phil Willis over in Arlington? Okay. So I thought, well, this is going to be a researcher. This is going to be a dude who deals in uh, just a photo or something. And I get this kind of grotchety old guy on the phone. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, he keeps talking about, I took the, the last picture of Kennedy and Johnson in the same frame. In my photos, you can see X, Y, Z, and this, that, and the other. And uh, suddenly I realized this, this man watched the President of the United States be murdered in broad daylight. And I got him on the phone completely by happenstance. And... Uh, 
I got off the phone there I, and I did order his, he wanted $100 for slides, a set of uh, 12 slides, 35 millimeter, which I did, I did pay that. And uh, it was well worth it. Um, but I hung up from dad and I thought, wow, I wonder what I could do if I actually tried. Um, so I started picking names out of the Warren Commission report, Charles Brim, Ike Alkins, uh, people like that, uh, Bill and Gail Newman. Uh, and they were listed, ironically enough, they were listed in Dallas information. In those days, you used to dial 214-555-1212, and it would get you. Now, now it's all different, I'm sure, with, with phones. But, uh, you know, I get Ike Alkins on the phone, who was a Warren supporter, Charles Brim, Warren supporter, uh, Bill and Gail Newman, um, not Warren supporters. As you probably know from Mr. Law, actually, uh, when when I first met Bill Law, actually he was with uh, Bill Newman. Uh, He's that a was great guy. Dallas. William Law's a great guy. He is. He is. Uh, and I've known him since I met him in 1996. And it was funny during his interview with you. He kept talking about these conference things that, that uh, you know, I was actually invited, I believe, to go to the the deal where he talked about going to lunch at the gate at the Newman's house in Mesquite, but I had a previous engagement that noon. <laughs> so I didn't get to go. Uh, but I, I, I ended up with this guy on the phone and I'm not going to give his name because I believe he's still alive. Um, but he tells me that uh, he heard upwards of eight, 10, maybe 11 shots. So most people are saying two to three shots, maybe four. And now all of a sudden I've got 11. And I thought, wow, uh, there's gonna be no way to get to the bottom of this unless I get some good witnesses. And no, not that those folks aren't good witnesses who, who thoroughly believe what they're saying. Uh, every one of them, I believe was saying what they believe, right, wrong or indifferent, they believe what they're saying. But um, I thought, well, who would that be? That, well, doctors are, are trained observers. They're trained to be cool under pressure. Uh, so the first one I called was Robert Shaw, who, worked, who was the thoracic surgeon who worked on Governor Conlon. And I get him on the phone and, and uh, one of the very first things he says, and I've got all this on tape, I need to, I, I worry that I need to get these switched to digital before the, the the iron oxide falls off the tape. You know, it's been 30 years. Um, but I get him on the phone and he says, I never believed the single bullet theory. Well, as you know, and as has been pointed out in so many interviews that you've done, without the single bullet theory, you've got nothing. You've got, you've got no case against Oswald, really. I mean, he could have been shooting, but you have to have another gun if you have if you have no single bullet theory. So I decided mm -hmm. the first one that uh, I would try would be Ron Jones. Dr. Ron Jones had made some very interesting remarks in Best Evidence, which I'd read around that time. And some of the books, High Treason, two, um, uh, High Treason, Volume Two, not High Treason also. 
Um, but he'd made some interesting remarks and I called him up and he actually answered his own phone. He didn't have a secretary answer. He answered his own phone. I called him at Baylor University Medical Center of Dallas. And I said, well, I, I, I'm the 17 year old kid and I'm doing a term paper, which I was. I'd managed, I talked my government teacher into letting me write about that for a term paper. And would you mind helping me out? You got something? You, you went like this? Oh, no, 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 I was moving my microphone. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I thought it was, I, was I, I guess I'm used to, I'm, I'm doing, uh, I, I'm used to doing college things where, hey. Um, well, you're talking to me like I'm a college student. I'm basically yeah. learning. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's interesting to me is like the stories behind this. I mean, we know, like I've reached out to some of the people who were the secondary parts of the Warren commission, the people that were a bunch of lawyers that are still alive. A lot of the, obviously original members are dead, but the people that helps with, and you're looking at like, okay, this is suspicious that first of all, they're all lawyers. And it's like, of course, they're going to write it in legal speak. And if you read the Warren commission, it doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. It's just, it's in legal speak. You know, like, I mean, it everyone, is, it's, it's difficult when you're 17 years old. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I get Ron Jones on the phone and he says, you know, I've had several interviews lately that I, I, I that the people misrepresented who they were. And I said, well, I'm happy to give you reference because the doctor who delivered me in 1975 was still practicing medicine. And I knew that the AMA put out a, a series of books which listed every physician in the country. So they could, I could give them that information. They could verify it in the book and they could call him. He says, yeah, let me transfer you to my secretary. You give your uh, reference and call me back tomorrow about the same time. I said, okay, cool. So uh, gave the secretary the information and I called back the second day. I believe the secretary did answer that day. And I said, can I talk to Dr. Jones? And he said, they said, yes, here you go. And here's, here's Ron Jones on the phone, uh, who is one of the best interviews I've ever had. This was June uh, of 1992. And I said, uh, well, I hope I passed the background check. And he said, yeah, my secretary did verify and you're exactly who you say you are. You know, uh, you, you have to be in high school with the with the date that the doctor gave us. So uh, I got about a 30 to 45 minute interview out of him in which he would say things like, the throat wound was compatible with an entrance in the throat. The head wound was compatible with a shot from the front. He never would categorically say, this came from the front, or this came from, wherever he his his big term is it's compatible or he would say it's not incompatible and i i got a lot of good stuff from him that that i walked away from that feeling like okay he was clearly shot from the front to read between the lines and get rid of the compatible part what he's telling me is he believes he's shot from the front now around this same time in april of 92 charles crenshaw came out with his first book Conspiracy of Silence. I made contact with Dr. Crenshaw because he had taken such a beating in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which my doctor had given me. Um, and it seemed to be that all the physicians that, that were interviewed for 2020, for instance, interviewed Charles Baxter. 
Uh, and he says, you know, Dr. Crenshaw has no basis to make these claims that Kennedy was shot from the front. So I looked in a Fort Worth phone book at the library. And, you know, this is, this is pre-internet. This is, this is old school stuff here. And uh, there's a C.A. Crenshaw, and I knew his middle name was Andrew. So I call C.A. Crenshaw at 217 Rivercrest in Dallas, or in the Fort Worth. Uh, he's deceased now is why I'm giving that out. Um, but uh, I, I get his wife. And I said, you know, I, I really would like to talk to Dr. Crenshaw because, because I felt like this guy's really just taking this huge pummeling in the media. He's got to feel like no one believes him. And I know I'm nobody. I'm this 17-year-old kid that, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans to this guy. But I'm going to call and at least voice some support. And Susan says... Uh, I will give him the message, and I believe you will be hearing from him. And a few hours later, the phone rings, and I'm again, I'm 17, my mom answers it. And I don't know if you've ever heard Dr. Crenshaw's voice, but it was very deep. Very deep. Oh, you know, is Brad there? My mom said it sounded like God calling. I've seen the video of him where he talks about the, the front shot. It's like the very exclusive interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, is that the one with Geraldo? Um, I don't remember if it's Geraldo. It's in the new Oliver Stone film. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, he did an interview on a show called Now It Can Be Told with uh, Geraldo Rivera's people. And he was on 2020 and some other shows. And I get Dr. Crenshaw on the phone and I said, you know, I just really uh, believe what you're saying. I mean, you have no motive. I mean, the guy's, the guy's been in medicine forever. He's, I mean, he's got to have a few bucks in the bank. He's not just out to sell a book. He's got something to say. So from there, and Dr. Crenshaw over the course of the years became actually quite a good friend. We would just call up and chat. Um, he would, on occasion when I got to college, he would send me uh, a newspaper clipping that he thought that I might find interesting. He would, you know, just strange things like that. Uh, Crenshaw kind of came into the fold from the dare of uh, Dr. McClelland. I called McClelland's office and uh, he says, I, you know, I really am not going to have time to do an interview at the office. Here's my home phone number. So that night I called his home phone number and the other day I'd responded to some uh, comment on uh, YouTube uh, thing about about McClellan and this guy responded to me saying well McClellan was a conspiracy theorist and I, I kind of took issue with that because you want to call me a conspiracy theorist okay you want to call you a conspiracy theorist okay why because neither one of us were there um, these guys were actually in the room and and I think when you've got knowledge firsthand knowledge that moves you out of being a theorist, you know, to, at least in my mind, that's how I reasoned it out. Well, I mean, even look at Cyril Wecht and look at Gary Aguilar who have medical degrees and are still practicing medicine. People call them, oh, they're doing this for uh, attention. They're conspiracy theorists. It's like, you have everything to lose 
when you have a business and you're running a profession, they're not doing it for their health. They're not doing it for fun. Clint Hill can go write another book. That's, that's explainable. But when you have people that are still practicing in their career and trying to make a medical profession, do you think that's going to help on their record being labeled as that unless they didn't strongly believe it? No. And, and, you know, virtually everybody that I contacted in 1992, 93, 94, because my, my research went in two different phases, which I'll cover, but they were all still practicing. Most of them had professorships at, at uh, UT Southwestern Medical School at Dallas, which is of course the, the school that's right there at Parkland. And you're right. I mean, that could have, they, they, there could have been hearings and, and boards and all kinds of people saying you have no business talking about this we're going to take away your tenure and you're out the door bud um and nobody did that um one of the things that i've got that i i thought i would just throw out there is mcclelland in particular i interviewed him on november 10th 1992 he put it very succinctly he uh he saw the warrant permission, or he saw the Zapruder film in 1969. He was part of the Clay Shaw trial, as you know. Uh, but he said to me, uh, the bullet hit him from the front and hit him tangentially in the side of the head, meaning, for those who maybe aren't geometry people, um, tangentially means just, just basically grazed the side of his head. If the, if, if the rifle being fired had been three to five minutes of angle off, he would have missed. Um, but, you know, he says he, he was hit tangentially in the side of the head. It entered probably somewhere near the front of that wound that I saw and blew out part of the skull and then continued out the back of the head at the posterior end of that wound. Well, that means it's an elliptical wound like this, that there's no distinct entrance and there's no distinct exit. Now, Crenshaw in his book, and I, I spent a lot of time with Crenshaw in Dallas and Fort Worth, and Crenshaw says that he saw an entry wound in this area. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, one thing about Charles Crenshaw and every, every single one of these guys that I met, uh, and even on the phone, you could tell, they believe what they're saying whether they're incorrect or not you can argue but these guys believed what they were saying and you know they they really did take part in some some things that put them in the right places mcclellan in particular what when perry's doing the tracheotomy you know he gets to parkland he's blue um they decide he's trying to breathe jim carrico throws down an intratracheal tube down his throat. They find that that's not working. So Perry elects to do a tracheotomy. He tells McClelland, because Perry on this side, uh, which I think we're reversed here, Perry's on the left side, uh, Charles Baxter's on the right side. McClelland is at the top of the head. McClelland is given a retractor. He holds the retractor and he basically just stands there well, they do the cutting on the trachea and get the tube inserted and all that. And what he told me was what I was doing didn't take any particular amount of attention. I was free to look at that injury as, as much as I wanted to. 
And you will see this drawing online if you can make yes. this out. Okay, you've seen this probably with this bit up here made out to me. A lot of witnesses have drawn that exact same location in the back of the skull. I've got I've got a series of drawings from uh, from Crenshaw. It's where we get the Harper fragment, the occipital bone. Yeah, Dr. Gerald Notabone. That's another one that I interviewed that he was adamant that that was an occipital bone. Uh, Notabone was the guy that, uh, or Notabaum, I guess I'm saying it incorrectly. He, uh, he saw the wound at, uh, or he saw the, the fragment rather at, I believe it was Methodist Hospital. Um, but he's saying that's occipital bone. Well, anybody that knows anything about skull anatomy knows that occipital bone is the triangular shaped, you know, <laughs> thing back here. And, and uh, McClellan actually described to me that while well, he's holding what, like I said, he called it the idiot stick, not to take away from physicians who are doing that at this very moment, but he's holding this and the cerebellum, which basically if you draw a line between your, your, the holes in your ear, basically what's below that is gonna be cerebellum. And the, cerebellum fell out on the table. Um, that places that wound definitively to me. It's not up here. It's not over here. When that bit of brain tissue is involved, that outlines the whole thing. Well, did any of the guys you interviewed that they talk about when uh, when they're at Parkland that I mean, if you're placing a trach tube because he's blue in the face and he looks like he's trying to breathe, you wouldn't do that if you go by the Zapruder film where the whole right side of his head explodes. It looked like it took out like a chunk of his eye, basically, if you're watching the Zapruder film and you're a novice, but then you start learning deeper into it. I mean, they were making reports about it, saying that he was still alive and I guess they're alive until they pronounce you dead. But you get into the hospital, it's like if his whole right side of his head is basically gone from a bullet, you're not going to try and place a trach tube in him. Well, he actually, his cardiac activity did not cease until 1252. He was shot at 1230. He arrives at Parkland about 1235. He's blue, which means he's trying to breathe. Basically, the heart is on autopilot at that point. Um, so they decide what they have to do is get him breathe. They call it the ABCs of trauma, uh, airway, breathing, and circulation. Um, but they did that. Cardiology shows up. They connect him to an electrocardiogram. He does have some random electrical activity in the heart, which they're still trying because now once that ceases, and they did do the defibrillation, but once that ceases, once the, the heart is electrically dead, the person is dead. So they did that. He did have that, that cardiac activity going on, but, but again, well, a lot of times, and, and I, I was a police officer for 17 years, and I've been to a lot of shootings where it was clear the person was still, was going to die. But for whatever reason, they were still breathing. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got separate systems. You know, your brain is one thing, your heart is another, your lungs are connected to the heart. And if that's still going, you're obligated to keep going. You're obligated to, to do everything you can for the, for 
this person that is in bad shape. Um, but yeah, they they did indicate that there was, uh, you know, or there were rather, uh, to be grammatically correct, signs of life. Um, he died at 1252. However, being Catholic, they knew the importance of the last rite. Now the the priest, Father Huber, and I believe there was another one named Thompson that was, I may be incorrect on that last name. Um, they were summoned very early when, when uh, Kennedy got to the hospital, but with city traffic and, and wading their way through the crowded parkland, it took them a while to get there. They got, they got there a couple minutes after he died. Um, they went ahead and did uh, the last rites. Uh, Father Huber actually gave an interview where he said he was certain that the soul was still with the body, interestingly enough. I don't know how, how one measures that. But that's why he wasn't declared dead until 1300, one o'clock, um, was because even though he'd been dead eight minutes, they wanted for the family to have the last rites given. So uh, that played into it as well. That, and, and they elected um, Kemp Clark, the neurosurgeon, who I've got an item on him that is maybe not tremendously well known. But um, they, they elected to have him be the one to declare him as deceased because it was a neurological injury. Now, now the thing about Kemp Clark he testified at the Warren Commission in 64. I don't believe he testified to the House Assassinations Committee. I may be incorrect on that. Um, but he very tight-lipped individual. I couldn't get a hold of him. I tried calling. I tried sending letters. I tried everything but going to his house. And not only didn't go to his house because I didn't have his address, I would have done it in those days. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, there was this guy in uh, 1992, or not, no, I'm sorry, I was in college, so it would have been 1994, um, named David Narrow, who was a steel worker out of Memphis. And David Narrow somehow managed to get Kemp Clark on the phone. Now, this is the first time that Kemp Clark has spoken to anyone other than the Warren Commission that I am aware of. And this is a big deal. He didn't tape it. So a lot of people doubt it. Now I've interviewed David Narrow at length and I think he's legitimately telling the truth that Kemp Clark in 1994 said, in my view, he was shot from the front and that was an exit wound in the back of the skull. Um, and that's what I got out of a lot of physicians. Um, Kenneth Sawyer, who was a resident, he's actually, I, I'm in Kansas. And he went to the University of Kansas uh, KU Med Center, which I'm not real proud of as a native Kansan. Um, Clark or uh, Sawyer actually gave several statements over the years in the 60s and 70s, and even appeared on Nova in 1998 where with McClellan and Peters and, and these guys and said, there's something wrong with those autopsy photos. They're not correct. 
Well, by the time I get a hold of Ken Sawyer, he has redrawn the injury. He's taken the McClellan drawing and moved it up. And it says this, uh, this uh, shows the back of the head and uh, the injury was temporal parietal, which as you know, when a doctor's describing an injury of, of bone, they a lot of times will group those names together. So he's placing that injury where? Exactly where the autopsy places it. And so he changed his mind somewhere after the Nova interview, uh, much like um, Pepper Jenkins. Pepper Jenkins was one that I called. He was the head of anesthesiologist after McClellan did the idiot stick, as he called it, and he stepped out of the way. Pepper Jenkins steps to the head of the table. During this time, Jackie Kennedy comes up to him and gives him, she's holding something in her hand like this, and she hands him something about baseball size, and it was a piece of his brain. And uh, Dr. Cl or Dr. Uh, Jenkins says, well, thank you very much, ma'am. Waits till she goes back out the emergency room door. And then he drops it in the kick bucket because obviously it's not gonna be anything that is uh, reusable, that, is a, that you can reattach. Now I got Pepper Jenkins on the phone in August of 1992. And again, with the, just with the Warner Court, you know, there, there's an amazing amount of stuff in this book that shoots down the very thesis. And you're, you're probably aware of that, that there's a lot of stuff in here that actually shoots down the final conclusion of the Warren Commission report. And one of them is on page 530. This is a letter from, Je from uh, Pepper Jenkins, excuse me, M.T. Jenkins, uh, MD, Professor and Chairman, Department of Anesthesiologists to Mr. J.C. Price, Administrator of Parkland Hospital. Statement concerning resuscitative efforts uh, on President Kennedy. This is why I called Pepper Jenkins. And I said, you made a statement on page two of your letter to Administrator Price that is very intriguing. And he kind of sighed and he says, what, what was that? He knows, he knows what's coming, he knows. Uh, but the statement, and this is word for word. Now, yeah, like I said, I'm on page 530. This is page two of his report. There's only one, where there are two paragraphs on this page. This is in the top paragraph, second sentence. There was a great laceration on the right side of the head, temporal and occipital, causing a great defect to the skull plate so that there was a herniation and laceration of a great area of the brain, even to the extent that the cerebellum protruded from the wound. There were also fragmented sections of the brain on the drapes of the emergency room cart. I read that to him. What do I get? I didn't write that in the letter to Price. I said, sir, I'm looking at it on page 530 of the warrant for it. I mean, this isn't even out of the exhibits section. It made the report. You know, in the exhibits, I believe it's in page, it's in volume six, I believe, of the exhibits. But I'm looking at the report itself. It was, it was important enough that they included it. And he says, I didn't write that. So I mailed him a copy. Well, what did I get? Nothing. Um, you know, 
just outright, uh, and he knew better. I could tell by the tone of his voice that he knew better. He knew that he'd written that. But I'm a 17-year-old kid, maybe 18 by that time. No, I was 17 at that time. So he's, he feels like he's going to say whatever he thinks, and I'm just going to take it at face value. Um, other guys, uh, Don Curtis was one um, that uh, Don Curtis took part in the cut downs. When, when, when he got into the emergency room, they get the trach done, they insert chest tubes, which the chest tubes, I don't know if you're familiar with all the procedures that were done. Uh, the chest tubes were there because he had some air and they were also worried about blood from the throat wound going down into the chest, causing a, a tension pneumothorax, which is where the, the lung is actually compressed to where it doesn't function properly. Um, they do the chest tubes and they put him in what's called the Trendelin position, which is where they drop uh, the head about 16 degrees. Uh, they then, on both arms, which they've got his arms extended out on arm boards from the gurney, and they've got his ankles. His, his ankles are elevated. They then cut into blood vessels in each extremity and start dumping fluids in. And ironically enough, Pepper Jenkins is a footnote. Pepper Jenkins was one of the guys that helped come up with LR, linger, uh, lactated ringer, lactated ringer's solution, which is basically salt water with some electrolytes in it. Um, but Curtis, I sent him, when I said my research consisted of two segments, the first segment was in 92, 93, I was calling these people and I recorded everything. Um, in 94, I became intrigued by the McClellan drawing because what did he write? He writes, Brad, uh, this is dated January 24th, 1994. Brad, the drawing below is an exact copy in regard to location and dimension of the drawing I made for Josiah Thompson in 1966. Best wishes, Robert M. McClellan, MD. I don't know what he means by in regard to location and dimension. <laughs> it's worded kind of funny. Um, so I think he means it's a Xerox, but I don't know what he's saying, but I, I'm trying to accurately represent what he said here. But I decided to send this to McClelland to get his take on it. Did you, because the, this is out of six seconds in Dallas and the original, um, caption on the drawings is a pictorial representation of President Kennedy's headwind as described by Dr. Robert McClellan of Parker Hospital. Well, now, did he do the drawing or did he not? That's what prompted the letter to McClellan. When I get that back, I start sending that drawing to everybody I've gotten address for, which by that time I'd interviewed tons of Parkland doctors, uh, been told no by several, not as many as you would guess, but uh, been told no interview by several. Um, but that, that was the second phase that I would send the, the, the drawing to these folks and say, okay, we've discussed this on the phone. Is this what we're talking about? And I got some very nice, nice responses. Ron Jones says, yeah, that's, 
that's about right. Probably not with as defined edges as is depicted in the drawing, but yeah, that's that's fairly accurate. Um, McCle or Dr. Crenshaw did his own drawings. One letter that I absolutely love is a handwritten letter that was done on the back of the, of the drawing that I sent uh, by Jackie Hunt, who was the only female. Dr. Crenshaw and I compiled the list of everybody that was present in trauma room one that we could identify in 1992. And he was insistent that on the list and I put their capacity he was insistent that I listed her as the only female MD in the room. So I'm throwing that out there because it was so important to him. But on the back of this letter, or on the back of this drawing, she writes, well, Jackie Hunt had testified to the Warren Commission. She said that the head wound in the back, she didn't speak to anybody else until about 1972. She spoke to the Boston Globe and the Boston Globe interview consists of her saying the drawing, or, or she said that the wound was on the, somewhere on the posterior side of the head. So I get this great handwritten drawing only, uh, or handwritten letter. One of the very few handwritten letters I've got from a Parkland doctor. And she said, the drawing agrees with my original statement somewhere on the right posterior side of the head. And that is still my statement. Uh, so you add all this up and what do you got? Now, I don't know how much you know about ballistics. Most people know enough to know that if you, if you fire a bullet, you don't get a hole this big. You don't get a hole this big uh, unless you're shooting a 50 caliber or something. Um, if you've got a hole this big in the back of somebody's head, it's pretty obvious that is an exit wound. Um, Ron Jones, interestingly enough, during the first interview that I did with him, he says, you know, I, uh, my, my initial impression was that he had been out shaking hands because he says, you've got to remember, we had no history of anything. We didn't know how he'd been shot, when he'd been shot, where he'd been shot, anything. He was just there. And my impression was that he'd been out perhaps shaking hands with well-wishers at the, you know, at the airport. Somebody walks up with a handgun, you know, kind of leans back and fires upward. Uh, and it went in the throat. And he says it either then went out directly this way or perhaps it struck a vertebrae and was diverted upward. Now, this is the impression of the physician. He's, he's trying to think of one bullet taking care of this whole thing. Well, flash forward to September, 1975. That was the scenario that Squeaky Fromm used when she tried to kill President Ford. She had a Colt 1911 and she tried to fire upwards and hit him in the head. But fortunately for you know, Mr. Ford and the country, because the country certainly didn't need an assassination right after Watergate, um, Squeaky Fromm had failed the chamber of the round. So she didn't know what she was doing. It's the only reason Joe Forbes lived to be as old as he did. But um, you know, these guys are seeing these wounds and they're trying to kind of put it together. But at the same time, they don't have time to really analyze this. They know that Earl Rose, 
the pathologist is extraordinarily qualified, nationally recognized. He's going to be the one doing the autopsy. So they think, well, we don't have to ascertain anything. Dr. Rose will do that. Um, that's the guy well, who said Texas state law that he's supposed to be doing the autopsy, right? That's, that's correct. Exactly right. He and Justice of the Peace Theron Ward showed up uh, right after Kennedy was declared dead. Well, by that time, the Secret Service had procured a, uh, a uh, casket from the O'Neill funeral home. And they were loading him up. They were, they were getting the hell out of there. <laughs> you know? um, Did any of the doctors go in depth of why that they needed to go so fast? Why the Secret Service went so fast? Yeah, why did why did the Secret Service apparently flash guns? Why I've heard people mention that was because Jackie Kennedy wanted the body back home or something. A lot of things that just don't make sense. But that's like people on the conspiracy side will also use that. Like that's how you know they're part of it. And I'm like, I don't know. I would have to be in that room to see how it was going down. I could see that, you know. I... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I could see it from both angles on it. It's just, it's just a weird thing, especially if you're looking for immediate medical attention, but you also have people that are, you know, performing an autopsy on them already that necessarily you could have a bunch of qualified, super qualified people to work on the president, not even like an hour or two hours away that could easily get there. And I get it's the pace of the time you have to hurry up and get this done. But I mean, even the most professional guy, the Texas Earl Rose, you have him going like, Hey, this is Texas state law for me to work on it, but then they're just trying to rush the body out of there. Because at the time there was no federal law on killing a president. It was a Texas state law. It was treated like any other homicide. Um, the problem was for the from the Secret Service angle, and I'm not saying that I agree with this, but I, I can kind of understand it. Lyndon Johnson makes it very clear to his, his head guy, Rufus Youngblood that he is not leaving Dallas without Mrs. Kennedy. Okay, well, the Secret Service, to, to quote uh, a line that was used on Air Force One that morning when Kennedy saw the wanted for treason thing, or not wanted for treason, but welcome Mr. Kennedy to Dallas, the newspaper ad, he, he was looking at that and he says, well, we're really going into Indian country today. Um, and, the Secret Service viewed themselves very much in Indian territory, nothing against Native Americans. I'm just using the phrase. But uh, he, President Johnson, they feel that they need to get him back to the safety of the White House. Uh, he's not leaving without Jackie. Jackie's not leaving without the body. So the Secret Service has a security issue. Um, but unfortunately, that, that security issue puts them at odds with the Texas state law. Um, they make it clear that they are leaving. I, I asked Earl Rose this specifically. Uh, what about guns? And Earl Rose uh, says, I never saw any guns, but there was certainly an implication. We all knew that they were armed. Um, other people, Dr. Crenshaw in his book talks about a Secret Service agent with a rifle 
being in the emergency room area right outside of trauma room one, which I, I just read yesterday, they're tearing down the original Parkland Hospital, which I hate to see that. Uh, so, uh, but apparently this Secret Service agent uh, was standing guard at the door of trauma room one and somebody tried to go in. This agent didn't feel that um, this person had business there. And I, I doubt that it was George Hickey. I hope not because George Hickey's certainly been blamed for a lot of other stuff that he didn't do. But somebody with a rifle, wham. Uh, and Dr. Crenshaw says in his book, and, and a lot of people dispute his book. I knew the man, he, he believed what he was saying, whether he was right or wrong. But he said he knew when the guy got hit that, that the jaw was busted. Now you've got that going on right outside the room. Um, and by this time, when Kennedy died, these doctors began to sort of filter out um, because they wanted to give Jackie a moment to sort of, you know, have our moment to say goodbye. So these, these doctors are all kind of hanging around outside, you know, kind of thinking, man, can you believe what we, what we, what we just went through? And uh, Secret Service, at that point, I doubt, you know, having been in law enforcement and having been in some rather high tents and uh, situations, you don't necessarily make it a secret that you're heavily armed. Um, and, but for them to do that going up against uh, a group of unarmed doctors, doctors who, you know, they're running what's called the Knife and Gun Club, which was the Parkland Emergency Department. They were sort of informally known as the Knife and Gun Club. And these agents are blatant enough that whether they flashed guns or not, Crenshaw said he saw them. He's the only one that I ran into that really definitely commented that he saw firearms. But when a guy's standing there with an, with an AR-15 or whatever it happened, I believe it was an AR-15 that probably the same one that was produced during the, the shooting by George Hickey. Um, there's, there's an implied threat. And these guys, you know, Earl Rose says, we're going to the morgue. I've, I've got to uphold Texas state law. Why did, did you ask him about why he was so 100% of trying to go by the state law? I figured at this point, you know, Mr. Kennedy's wife, Jackie's there. You're causing a little bit more heartbreak by keeping this going on, even if you want to pronounce him dead. I mean, unless he was looking for like, I was the doctor that pronounced Kennedy dead or something on his record, but I don't see that. No, actually, it was it was Clark that pronounced him dead. So but it would have been Rose that signed the autopsy report. And I believe that Earl Rose. You know, if a, if you're a pathologist. And someone murders me in your jurisdiction and the body gets away somehow. Someone steals my body, somebody loses it in the morgue, whatever. There's probably gonna be some ramifications for you. Um, that Texas State Board of Pathology is gonna say, hey, uh, we have this law for a reason. This is the President of the United States. This is an incredibly important case. What the hell happened? 
that you don't have a report for us. You should have done that report. And I think it was more a thing of a, a CYA thing. Cover your ass. Then a, yeah, exactly. Then a thing of, I was the guy that did the autopsy. Uh, Earl Rose was a very modest, very soft-spoken individual. Um, and, and, and visiting with him, uh, I had no doubt that he was eminently more qualified than, than uh, Humes, Boswell, or Fink. And I, I've spoken to both Humes and Boswell, and neither one of those two guys <laughs> left a great amount of confidence in me. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Aguilar has a lot more experience interviewing those two guys. Uh, I, I attempted some interviews with those guys, but uh, they both made it pretty clear. Dr. Humes was, was happy to lecture me, um, but he didn't really want to answer any questions. But I, I feel that, that Dr. Rose was an obstacle to the Secret Service. The Secret Service is, is their job. They've They've just dropped the ball. And, and I'm not blaming Clint Hill or anybody else, uh, but, but on their watch, somehow, a president just died. The new president is refusing to leave without the widow, but yet we've got to get him back to the safety of the White House. So I can see both sides of it, um, but I still believe that that autopsy should have been done in Dallas County. Um, and I'm, I am sure had that autopsy been done in Dallas County, that it would have been, that we, we, we might not even be talking about this today. The family physician was there, wasn't he? George Berkeley, yes. I'm trying um, to think because I know some of the doctors talked about they couldn't account for every single person that was in that room. And I can understand that you're under some pressure. You're focused on the body, not everyone trampling around each other. But I know I, I saw Berkeley uh, that he was involved in both. He was there every moment when Kennedy was or not every moment, but he was at both hospitals when Kennedy was. Um, being yeah, looked at. Uh, you know, pre presidents to this day travel with physicians. In fact, Air Force One has an operating room on it. Um, but it, it didn't in those days. But um, George Berkeley was several vehicles back from the president. Now, Jim Carrico had heard a rumor that President Kennedy had Addison's disease. Yeah. And he went ahead and, and shot him full of steroids, knowing it's not going to hurt anything, even if the rumor is incorrect. But uh, George Berkeley arrives several minutes after Kennedy is, is being, after the treatment had begun and says, you need to give him these steroids. And they said, don't worry about it. It's already been taken care of. George Berkeley is the one that signed the death certificate. The death certificate is an interesting document in that it says that the, uh, the back wound was at the level of the fourth thoracic vertebrae. Fourth thoracic is, is, we're looking at about this far lower than, than what is described, you know, because the autopsy report describes that wound as being above the scapula on the right side. Um, well, that's your boy, short... Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter came in there and was like, hey, let's just uh, adjust. The... It's, Arlen Specter is the one that did that. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you look at the clothing, which I'm sure you've seen. Um, the Secret Service agents who saw him struck from the rear, um, they actually described, you know, the, the boss was hit. Um, I believe one of them even said low in the back. Excuse me, I've got some allergy problems today. You're good. I, 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 wanna, I don't know if you interviewed Arlen Specter, but there's a guy, Tom, Tom O'Neill. Um, he wrote a book called Chaos about the Manson murders and exposed kind of the truth behind Bugelosi, where it turns out he committed perjury during the Manson trials. He put a prosecutor on the defendant's side and he basically sabotaged the whole thing. So you, they never even Not got surprising. it. But when he, he, he writes for The Intercept, and Intercept's a very respective newspaper. So, well, he wrote a book about the Manson murders, and it happened to be Joyon West, who worked for MK Ultra, was the same psychiatrist who administered a flu shot to Jack Ruby before he started going nuts, which is interesting in its own. But he started looking into the JFK case, and he had called Arlen Specter and told Arlen Specter because Arlen Specter publicly made it that if anybody has any criticisms or anything and new evidence that comes out refuting his original statement on this single bullet theory that he would be open to listening to them. And he gives him a call, says, I have these new documentation. This is before his book comes out. And he says, I have this new documentation. I want to show it to you. He got a secretary. I think it was not even like 10 minutes later after he hung up, hung up the phone. Arlen Specter calls. And at this time, he's running for senator. And it was actually the first time in any of his campaign trails where it looked like he was going to lose. So he thought, hey, if this is new evidence about the single bullet theory, maybe it could help me win another term. Well, Tom O'Neill said he never got paranoid about it, but he just got some weird vibes because Arlen Specter was like, well, if you're in Philly at your parents' house, I stay down there on the weekends. Let's meet up, and then you can show me the evidence so you don't have to send your documents, the only stuff you have that hasn't been published in your book yet. I'll come see this, and I'll look at it. Well, Tom O'Neill cancels last minute. Arlen Specter calls him up and starts throwing this giant fit of like, why didn't you – why did you cancel? What's going on? And he's like basically like – very, very pushy. Like you need to show me these documents that you have. And, you know, he ended up, uh, I think something happened. I don't know if he passed away or something like that, but Tom O'Neill eventually published this and didn't show it to Arlen Specter. But I always thought that was really weird. Like, you got to think you're this fresh law school kid that just gets assigned and your whole career basically is built on a lie. The single bullet theory. It's that's your whole professional. That's everything. You're basically, you're putting that on your resume and someone someone shows evidence that can prove that you're not that you're going to hundred percent want to know what that is either be the one that releases it. So then you go, I was wrong. And then you get to produce the new evidence or you try and cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, as far as my dealings with Spectre, um, they were very disappointing. He was on Larry King one night when I was in college. Uh, I'm sure it was campaign time. And this guy calls in, and I'm 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 trying to call in to Larry King as well. And that this guy gets through and he says, you know, I'd really like to have a detailed explanation of how you arrived at the war or at the uh, single bullet theory. And the guy and uh, Spectre says, Well, if you will send your or yeah, yeah, you send your name and address and what you're interested in to my office, I will be happy to address that on a point by point basis. Now, this is right after Oklahoma City. This was uh, probably June of 1995. Um, I wrote a letter 
to Spectre that said, this gentleman whose name I had at the time because I was videotaping, I, the old VHS recorders, I was recording Larry King. And I said, you know, this guy, Joe Blow, uh, was, was going to get a point-by-point -point, uh, dissertation from you on the single bullet theory. If possible, I would really like to get a copy of that. And what I got was a form letter on domestic terrorism. That, that it had nothing to do with anything that was in my, my letter. Um, it, it just was like, well, let's just send this kid something, anything, you know. It's addressed to Bethany College, Lindsburg, Kansas. And uh, so this kid will just take whatever we give him. You know, he's, he's not of any age to, to pull it, you know, be able to pull anything off. So let's just, just throw him a bone. And <laughs> I was a little disappointed in Mr. Spector because Mr. Spector actually does have Kansas ties. And I thought, well, maybe that'll be a, a, uh, a bit of an in as well. Um, he grew up in the town of Russell, Kansas, which is two hours from where I was going to college. And I thought, you know, sometimes that, that you know, some little connection, but, but no, I get, a, I get a letter on, thank you for your concerns about domestic terrorism. Please be advised that we take this very seriously and, you know, we're doing everything we can. And that's just like, what a waste of time. Well, you got to thank all the people that gave you the time. I mean, it, it's got to feel great that some that they were willing to talk with you too. But it's also you're a younger generation. It's like how I managed to get the researchers on my show. They see a young kid interested in the assassination. A lot of people, I mean, especially my generation, has dropped off from just history in general. But the, I, I know you know probably about the research community. It's very, very tight knit, and a lot of people are kind of shots from both sides, depending on where you fall, if you agree or you disagree. But these people, they want to spread the message out there. But I feel like the people that just didn't want to give the time is they're probably tired of just rehashing it over and over again. Exactly. You know, when I called uh, Charles Baxter, who uh, was one of the Parkland physicians, in fact, he he's responsible for Parkland's burn unit, which is one of the more respected burn units as far as research and, and coming up with new therapies and that kind of stuff. I called his house one night and uh, this would have been about the same time I interviewed Ron Jones to the first time. Uh, it would have been summer of 92. And I get Mrs. Baxter. And Mrs. Baxter says, you know, uh, he really, he's not gonna be able to talk to you. Even though I, when I sent my, my copy of the Warren Commission to be signed by uh, Jim Carrico, because that was how I got my foot in the door. Please sign my book, and and you know, but it came back with a Baxter signature on it as well. But she said, you know, these Parkland doctors have just had had too much. They just and and I understand that. Um, but I'd rather be told that than like Jenkins or like Salyer, who just suddenly. Let's just go with the party line. That that'll that my phone calls will drop off if I just if I just go okay there's the autopsy uh, and I agree with it you know um, but yeah definitely I I had a 
tremendous amount of good luck. And it, it isn't just even department people. I had the Bethesda people. Like I got Major uh, General Edwin Walker on the phone. Dude, tell me about him, please. Walker. <laughs> that dude wrote a letter to himself, uh, I guess, under the name of somebody else saying, while he's arrested, please don't give him any psychiatric appointments or any of this type of stuff because we know about the KGB's uses of Russian lobotomies. Where I'm like, dude, if you know about Jack Ruby and his psychiatric appointment with Julian West, then you're like, yo, this was, he knew about that MK ultra stuff before we have documentation of when it started. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Walker was, I don't know why I decided to call Walker. <laughs> you're doing what I do. You're I reaching think, out to everyone. I like it. I think, I think I, I had a friend in, in college in Dallas who's still, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, and uh he did you he smell sulfur did you smell sulfur no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, no. uh the uh the phone book smelled like paper fortunately otherwise you know I, I of course i could probably still go home and and try it um but uh walker i called and i was just interested in why one of his one of the photographs published by the Warren commission had the car the, it's it's a picture of his house on i forget the name of the street but but his house and some of the pictures have a car tag there's a car in the driveway and some of them have the tag intact some of them it's been like exacto knife bladed out of there and i was curious about that and i was also curious as to what his thoughts on kennedy were because i'd heard some rumblings uh, this was before I went to conferences. I went to conferences from about 96 to about 2003. And then and I, I got kind of fed up with some stuff and I stopped going. But I call Walker and Walker is, you know, he's 180 years old. You know, uh, I don't know how old it was, I mean, by 93 or something, but, but uh, very grouchy, very intimidating. You know, I was, I believe, 18 at that point. It was October... I believe of 93. Now, as soon as I give that, someone's going to look up the day that he died and find out that I'm off by so many months or something. But screw him. Who cares? As, as, as a ballpark, that's when it was. And he gets into the Oswald thing and he insists. In fact, he sent me a form letter that, uh, that, and he just jumped up and down on this on the phone that Oswald was in custody by the Dallas Police Department the night of the Walker shooting in April of 63. And I said, well, that's, that's very interesting. I've never heard that before. And I, I seriously doubt it, but I'm not going to tell him that. I'm not going to get into an argument with the guy. And besides that, like I said before, I wasn't there. Maybe he was. I pulled up the document with Posner where it was a letter from Walker to J. Edgar Hoover or the Dallas police uh, asking about Oswald was arrested after the shooting at my house and he was released at like 12 p.m. or something like that. Please confirm if this is true or not. But then I found files on Bobby Kennedy that was investigating the Walker incident. Um, because if you really look at the examination and they did an investigation of it, of the Walker thing, 
it looked like it was for political gain. It didn't make sense. Why was Oswald shooting at a right wing guy than shooting at a liberal like Kennedy? And his brother wanted to confirm what these rumors were. And they, the FBI said that Walker's a liar. He makes things up. And, and that was kind of the thing, you know, of course, when, when I'm talking to him, I, I kind of attribute this to probably some form of dementia. I mean, he was, he was quite old and, but he, he kept jumping up and down on this phrase that the law does not provide for prosecution and equal protection at the same time. And his, his thesis that he kept, well, his, what his insistence, what he kept insisting to me was that Oswald was in custody and that this went clear to JFK, that the White House found out that Oswald was in custody in Dallas at that moment for this shooting against Walker. And because Oswald was an intelligence asset of some nature, um, I don't believe he ever used the phrase uh, CIA, but Walker's contention was that somebody at the White House proper, not, not a DOJ, not at uh, the Pentagon, not anywhere else, somebody said, call Dallas and tell them to cut him loose. Um, and that was, Walker just seemed absolutely obsessed with that, that, uh, but, but again, he was very intimidating to me. So I was not eager to stay on, you know, this guy, I'm sure still had connections with, uh, with people in the business. You don't, you don't do what he did and leave that that business and several ties it's like you know if you're an intelligence agent you've still got friends in intelligence and i you know i was I, now why did he in, intimidate me probably because i was 18 years old i mean if, if i would have interviewed him today it would be very very different but his belief was that Oswald was arrested that night and that the White House had ordered him cleared. So that was my, my dealing with Mr. Walker. I don't, the same way I treat Walker is the same way I treat Alex Jones. Like, I feel like he's known a little bit too much of like maybe some secret stuff that does go on. But then when you know that little bit, you start thinking everything is like that. And then you can't decipher what's real and then what's kind of fake. Like he knew a lot of stuff where there's evidence on it today, the MK Ultra stuff that he was obviously writing letters about long before it was exposed in court hearings and everything. Um, but if you look at all the political stuff he was doing, he was just, it's just, it's so like obviously for attention, it's the most bombastic type thing to get views or to get people to, you know, support him in every type of way. Um, I don't know. He's, he's a strange character. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, you know, it's, it's in a way kind of fortunate that the, the, that the Alex Jones type was not around so much in 1963. Otherwise, I mean, we've already got muddied waters. Can you imagine how, how muddied water the waters would be if we had a lot of people making 
these outrageous claims about, about Kennedy back in 63. Um, there were a few of those outrageous claims made, but not very many. But now with you know, the proliferation of talk radio and was it some sheriff somewhere after a mass shooting called a vitriolic speech, um, you know, we're fortunate that there were people like Mark Lane, people like Tank Thompson, um, Sylvia Marr, uh, Mary Farrell. Uh, Mary Farrell was a bit of a mentor to me. Um, you know, these folks that actually took things responsibly, you know, Penn Jones, for instance, Harold Weisberg, but Penn Jones, uh, he says, uh, well, I was introduced at a, at, a, at a lecture and I was introduced as an expert on assassination. And the very first thing that I did was I got up there and I said, no, if somebody introduces themselves as an expert on the Kennedy assassination, run the other way, because there is so much to know that no one can know everything. Um, people like Penn Jones were responsible enough to say, you know, no one can know everything. So why don't we each kind of specialize in an area? And then we'll get together and compare notes, you know, whereas you have, and, and I'm not picking on Mr. Jones, I'm just picking on uh, the sort of mindset of, well, I know this, this, and this, so therefore I'm an expert on it and I'm qualified to go on the radio or television or whatever it is and, and well, make this or that statement. It's even difficult now. Even every researcher still follows that Penn Jones model of you pick one area, then you research the hell out of it. But every researcher, they just don't talk in a lot of these communities. There's certain niche groups and certain things because there's these small little details that just space out like i had someone explain like a nixon angle which is the the hit team that went to dallas i believe it, it was the military industrial complex but i've heard the you know I, i've heard the you know the a special team or the rogue elements of the cia and i i've talked to a lot of people with different perspectives on it but i mean I, when i talk about like a people say like well people conspiracy theorists like the deep state thing i'm like well i mean the deep state it just depends on you talk about intelligence covert ops that happen if we can talk about regime change with castro i mean does it just limit to just being outside or does it talk about maybe if and you look at the same eyes you looked at castro as this mad person and you just change that to someone who we know people weird suicide the clinton have a whole kill list i'm pretty sure like that's there's weird suspicious stuff about that and i'm just saying like to question things and it's this idea that it won't happen in your own thing and i think that's why the kennedy case kind of attracts to a lot of people that are kind of skeptical about their government and have mistrust in this type of situation because either something they've experienced in their life but the Kennedy case for me, when I look at it, I mean, there's a lot of things that don't make sense. And I stick to the articles and the documentation of Harold Weisberg and Malcolm Blunt. And I listen to other people and guests that I talk to on my show, but I'm looking at the documents and the documents are saying the same thing, that we can't let there be conspiracy or people are doubting that it's just this Oswald fellow. And I go, okay, then we have to get a real investigation into that. And that's why I put so much weight into the House Select Committee on Assassinations because whether they ran out of funding and they stopped, their investigation to me is what the history book should also be teaching if you need that government sanction investigation. 
we don't have one officially like that as actually came with an answer. But they exposed a lot of things that I even showed Posner on the show that Marina Oswald couldn't tell the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. Well, the Warren Commission said that she pointed out his rifle. Well, if you read the Warren Commission, it doesn't look like an investigation into the president. It looks like Oswald did it and we're going to show you how, which is why it's important that people like you did these interviews in these moments because my generation and younger generations out there, I'm glad we have recording tapes of things, but we're clueless. We don't know even where to start half the time. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people aren't into ballistics or firearms or stuff. I am. Um, I, I was impressed that uh, Gary Aguilar referenced uh, Masad Ayub. You've got to be a pretty solid gun guy to even know who Masad Ayub is. But um, you know, you've got a, a rifle with with the wooden, you know, the wooden bit, the 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 guards the barrel and the wooden stock and all that stuff. Shotgun, you know, your barrel is is like this, or is, or if you've got a a double barrel or an over and under, and, and you know, you got this thing up here that that does this rather than a bolt. That should be, I mean, any layman on the street should be able to know the difference there. So if Marina can't nail that down, then how can we trust? Virtually, does she know the difference between a rifle and a pistol? I mean, <laughs> I know she took the pictures of Oswald on Neely Street, but um, did you, you know, like my Gary Aguilar episode? Oh, I loved it. Gary and I actually used to work together. Uh, on, I know. I remember you telling me that, but I got some crap for that. They were like, "Why'd you got to talk so much?" I'm like, "Does everybody understand this show is not an interview? It's it's conversation." I'm the questions I asked. I got to know. Like, I'm just I'm just hooked at this point. Like, I mean, he was very good with medical evidence. William Law was good. I mean, he told me things off air that I heard. Like, the ambulance at the second hospital at Bethesda went missing for like 45 minutes or something like that. Which yeah. Is, yeah. What is that about? You know, that, that gets into the whole Lifton thing. And um, Mr. Lifton, you know, I've, I've met, in fact, I believe I was on a panel with Mr. Lifton in uh, about 1997. Um, I went to Dallas the first time, very excited to meet David Lifton, you know, and, and uh, I go up to him and I said, sir, you don't know me. My name is Brad Parker. He said, I know exactly who you are. And, um, he then starts in on me on, he has a problem with the way I've done a couple of things. And he's very vocal about it. And when he's done, I realize this man is absolutely correct. Um, I, what it was, was I wasn't sending him copies of the articles that I was writing. And he says, you know, you're sending these, these articles to people that are trying to debunk what I'm doing, my research, and you don't have the courtesy to send it to me. And I said, sir, you wrote this tremendous book of what, seven, 800 pages. Why would I presume to send you one of my little pitiful three-page articles on what Gary or what uh, Ron Jones told me? And he said, that's not the point. The point is you should have the 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 courtesy and he was absolutely correct um but when it, when you come down to it and and mr law has done a tremendous amount on 
with the Cybert and O'Neill thing. Um, you know, and I think he's still working on it. But, um, you know, best evidence, I don't know if you've read best evidence. If you haven't, um, I would I would recommend it. He, David Lipson said the same thing to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, he's got some stuff in that book that that I don't necessarily agree with the conclusions that he reached, but he did some of the best research that, that was out there. I watched his I mean, interviews. Um, he wanted me to send him questions, and I told him, I was like, it's kind of not how my thing goes. Um, I don't know what I'm going to ask you. It just kind of flows, and that's how we do it. But there's no script here. We just we talk. Um, he didn't really seem interested yeah, in that. Which yeah, is, and, and is this fun. is nice. I, I like your format. Um, I, I probably lost a – no, I haven't. Um, I sent him my number, never heard anything back. It's fine. I mean, I get it. There's a couple researchers I probably missed the opportunity on because of someone I had on either they don't like this researcher that I had on or I had a bunch of people get mad at me for having Posner on and I was like you got to understand from a younger generation looking into the assassination I have to understand everything the acoustical evidence I have to understand it doesn't matter does it it does not matter if it's bullshit or anything like that it doesn't mean that's where I'm going to side with it but I have to understand the times I had to look into George DeMorne shield I had to look into people that specifically worked on communism what is this fear of communism that I'm not understanding because we don't have that today and it's just giving me the whole scope of everything and you kind of start realizing like I mean I'm going to listen to it I'm going to talk to this person about it but I also am going to go by documentation what I know about the government manipulation I mean in institutions universities I've done an episode on and Hollywood I've done an episode on so many episodes of just J Edgar Hoover's administration Nixon's administration all these corrupted talons of the government involved into a lot of things and I'm a patriot at heart but you should know about a lot of these things as well too because I mean you have to be aware I think when you start you know the media is probably our biggest issue today and our biggest example. Um, I had Mal Hyman on here talk about, you know, the media's involvement in all this. I had to learn what Life Magazine, like their power, and then Geraldo Rivera, what was his? And you just start learning. It's like, okay, I'm looking at a 50-year, almost 60-year process of all the documentation that's come out. So I'm, I have that head start. But you guys have also researched this for 30, 40 years. So you already have your bias built up, in a sense, on comparative of who you're going to talk to and who you're not. I'm just lucky I don't know any of the back history drama. So I'm coming at it with like best thing I could do is give you my time. And so far, I mean, Posner was a – he was a nice guy to me. Um, we talked a little bit longer off air. He's friends with David Lifton too. Um, which I mean, I think a lot of it is for show, you know, you, you end up having a narrative or a side, his whole thing is the single bullet, the official conclusions, Oswald did it. And then everyone else that's on the opposite, like David Lifton. I mean, obviously people want to see them answer specific questions. Well, I like it when it's more conversation, because then you get to take them out of the thousand interviews they've already done saying the same thing over and over again you get to ask them like what were you drinking when you were wrote best evidence like were you drinking a pepsi or you drinking a coke and then if he says coke you said hey oswald was on the second floor with a coke and then ah you know you do that that's fun <laughs> yeah yeah and i did notice you know your shows are long enough and i this last week has been kind of crazy i've only had a chance to to watch just a handful of of people and i went with the people that i knew I've had some dealings with Posner that um, 
they weren't they weren't nasty, but they were a little curt. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to watch your episode, um, and I, I hold no bias against him. I mean, he's again. I think that most of these people. I'm not going to say all, but I think that most of these people truly believe what they're saying, whether you whether you agree with them, whether you don't agree with them. They could be mistaken. I could be mistaken. Um, well, I was going to ask you this about the Parkland doctors, and I also want to talk about the Bethesda ones, but you got to think you're so involved into your research and your specific area these doctors are. And then they see something that's pitched in a certain, I mean, I've seen, I was reading the Warren commission and then I was like, damn it, am I on the wrong side of this? And you doubt yourself because you got to think they're going to show you every point that's going to fit their narrative. And that's what I kind of had issues with. And it's about our legal system too. Our legal system is set up in a way of it's a game. I'm going to defend my client, which means I'm going to make sure I don't look at the stuff against him. I'm only going to pick the things that would admonish him. Then you look at the prosecuting side. I'm going to look at everything that attacks you. And I think that's a terrible situation to be in because whether it's money or anything that gets involved, it's just now a contest of who's going to be the winner. And that shouldn't be like that when you're looking for the answer of the truth. And I, I kind of take that the same way with the researchers and the case in this matter. Your truth is going to be everything that you've researched into. So when you start having doubts like a lot of these doctors, whether they reverse their opinion on their official statement if there was conspiracy, it's because after so much time, you're just broken at this point yeah and and who knows i mean posner i think um managed to talk a lot of doctors maybe ken sawyer for instance talk them into reconsidering their opinion um you know i i contend that any book you read on this you should have some kind of problem with something if you're not you're just you're just spoon feeding yourself. You're not, you're not actually kind of critically thinking about this, that, um, you know, there's stuff about my book. My book is unusual. Um, I'm not sure that that, that same book would come out today. Um, I'm not entirely happy with it. Um, I, I stand by everything that's in it, but I, the format of it, I, I don't uh, necessarily care for. Um, but I think that unless you are actually critically thinking about what you're reading, you're not, you're, you're, you're just, I, I hate to use the phrase because I heard an interview with one of the survivors of the Jonestown shooting. He said he didn't like the use of it, but you're just drinking the Kool-Aid if you're not actually thinking about what you're reading. That's funny. You mentioned Jonestown. I try to get them on my show. Oh, really? No, I heard an interview several years ago on NPR with uh, one of the guys who survived the shooting at the airport. And uh, he said that the, the phrase drink the Kool-Aid bothered him. And I've always remembered that. But in this particular instance, that's what I'm going to go with. I think I know who you're now, talking about. He wrote, he wrote a book on it. Um, It's because it makes them seem like they're all like just lemmings following something and it's not it's not true a lot of this was like family members and people just thought they were part of a community and then it kind of went really bad now you got a funny look on your face when i mentioned that i i had a, you know i had a not an issue but i'm not entirely happy with my book yeah um 
the reason that came about was I'd written several articles. I started with the Jones one, which turned up at a COPA research convention, thanks to Gary Aguilar. Um, but I, I had written several articles. I wrote an uh, obituary for my friend, Dr. Charles Crenshaw. And then I wrote a paper which has never appeared in any journal called The Subjective Degree of Medical Certainty. And I get a call from Deborah Conway one day. And she says, I'm getting a lot of calls for your articles. And I said, oh, okay, so Xerox them. I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, she said, well, I'd like to put them together in an anthology. And I'm like, are you kidding? This thing is going to be this thick. It's, it's going to, no one's going to buy it. There's only a few of us involved in this, this far, namely myself and Vince Palomero. And um, Vince and I uh, became fast friends in like 1996. So I've always felt that we've had a bit of a connection. Um, but, um, you know, we shared a lot of our research and I said, no one's going to buy this. And she said, well, now again, remember, this is pre-internet days. And she said, well, you know, one thing is that we could use this as an opportunity to get your source material, the stuff that you really rely on, not the interviews necessarily, but stuff like White House transcript uh, 1327C, the, which is the interview or the press conference that Malcolm Perry and uh, who was the second one? It's been a while since I looked at it. <laughs> um, but it's, the, you know, that press conference, get that out there. Get uh, some of the Warren Commission testimony that's not readily available. Now it's all online. In those days, you had to go to a university, which fortunately where I was at, we had the full Warren Commission testimony. Um, you know, stuff from the HSCA, stuff from the AARB, and make that stuff available so that people can see where you're coming from. Now, to me, when the thing came out, it's this much of me and about this much filler of, <laughs> of, of material that now is readily available online. And, and I felt that it kind of made me look a little bit like I was. You're reading reviews, dude. Stop reading reviews, man. No, I'm not. I'm reviewing You're it myself. <laughs> oh, look, I don't no. like anything I do either, man. And I got a thousand something episodes that I don't like. I don't listen to. I either, noticed your, so. Yeah, your your uh, your episodes are. Uh, yeah, you've got you've got a hell of a number of episodes. How long have you been doing this show? Four years. Damn. I just started taking weekends off, but some weekends I still post. I used to do it every day. You just, it's easy to talk to people. My format's pretty set up to where you don't need to, you know, focus a whole lot. You just got to kind of be in the moment. Like I give you my full time and respect and that's the best I can offer people is that. And I think that's well, kind of, and it's what it's, it's good. When you got a hold of me and I've been contacted in the past by some people who have genuinely disturbed me. I got some, <laughs> some uh, news. I, I, I was getting postcards from anonymous postcards from this guy that claimed that David Rockefeller did it. And I needed to look into this, that, and the other. And, oh, I know who you're talking about. And we're not going to talk shit on air, but I know who it is. <laughs> well, I may need to talk to you because I still don't know who that was. Uh, I just got a series of about six random 
postcard that I found very alarming. And I was on the phone to another gentleman one time who was very paranoid about the CIA monitoring things and happened to be that we were in a lightning storm and the phone went dead and uh, never heard from that guy again. I think he thought that the CIA had zapped our conversation. But uh, when you contact, well, first of all, I'm a big fan of the band, which you may be familiar with. <laughs> My whole life, dude, it never goes away. Uh, I, I suddenly have Robbie Robertson in my inbox and I'm a guitarist and I'm like, oh, oh, tell me he's going out on tour and he needs somebody as a, as a rhythm guitarist, you know? We could start a band if you want. You don't know how we, much we trouble that name has got me in, dude. When I reach out to a JFK researcher, I can name off a couple top hitters and they have not sent me anything back. And I just got a response after months. I reached out again and I was like, it's my name's Robbie, you know, give them this little email thing. And they go, what's your last name? And I was like, look, it's real. Look me up. Just check my Spotify. My name's on there. And I give them my last name. Cause it sounds like I get, it, it sounds like a fake name. I don't know. No, I didn't. I know. I know it was a real name. I just was like, Oh, please tell me I've got a tour date. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I was still very flattered, even though it wasn't from, from the guitarist. I, I, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I don't really know this individual. I glanced briefly at a couple of episodes and I got a hold of Vince Palomero. And I said, who is this guy? And he said, oh, you've got to do that show. This guy, this no guy, shit, really? Like, yeah, he said, he lets you talk. He's very respectful. It's very laid back. It's conversational. It's great. You need, you've got to do this show. And uh, he was right. I've, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Um, I don't know how much time we have left, but, uh, but uh, certainly this has been a great, uh, great experience. And I'm, I'm very flattered. You know, I, I, I was in, uh, I assumed you probably heard of me through Vince because in the Park unto Bethesda book, not to brag, but I am in his book more than I'm in my book. Um, I am named by name, I believe, 18 times. Um, and I respect him tremendously. He's done a lot of great work. He's helped me out on a lot of stuff. And when he says, you've got to do this, this is a very respectful young man and he's, he's doing a great job. Um, that to me spoke volumes and that, that was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work. And if we've had some technical difficulties today, but we're making it work. Um, I so res I respect the time all the researchers have given. I mean, you got to look at like, the, I don't, I could pick any other topic and obviously hot trendy ones. Cause people say I could do this for clicks. And it's just like, that's not what this is. Honestly, if, if I could tell you that I, I just this week alone have stopped looking into documents because I kept sending them to David Denton and he was like, chill like because <laughs> i was sending him like 50 something documents and he's like robbie it's 1 a.m and i'm like dude so he's got a couple documents he's actually going to mention at the conference and i told him you don't have to give me credit for it just say them they're important stuff i feel like because i'm looking through that and i'm not just looking through malcolm blunt's archives and harold weisberg's i'm on the fbi site the jfk site and all this i mean it's consumed is a little blunt, bit of my life malcolm blunt yeah is, is blunt no longer with us no blunt's no i was looking through his archives Oh, okay. Did okay. I say I he passed? Were... No, he's, he's still alive. No, no, no. You said archives. And I, when you say archives, I think of like Weisberg or, or one of these folks that, 
basically instead of talking to them, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm's great. Yeah. Um, much respect to Bart camp. He sent me a Google drive link of all the um, documents and stuff. I've had him on a couple of times too. Like I said, there's things I don't agree with. I don't agree with prayer, man. I don't agree with a lot of stuff, but I'm just trying to understand every single thing, man, because everyone's got a lot of weight behind it. The only angle I have not tackled yet, and it will be upcoming, which is the mafia angle. Um, because I've heard people mention names and I just need to individually look at biographies on these people and try and figure it out. But um, we've almost been talking two hours. I'm about to say we've almost been talking two hours. I want to give you time to promote your book because I also want to talk to you off air for a little bit. Okay. Um, my book is called First on the Scene. Uh, it was published by JFK Lancer. Originally, it came out in uh, a soft cover with a CD-ROM of the hardcover or, or the, of, of the book in a PDF format. But really more than, more than anything that I wrote, the reason to buy this disc, and I think it's like 1250 or something, is that on that disc is the, is the video of me introducing Dr. Ron Jones in Dallas, and then a talk by Ron Jones, which runs about an hour and a half. And that talk by Ron Jones is worth worth the 1250 never mind me um i believe i'm also available on kindle i saw the kindle edition of this and was appalled because stuff like this these charts they don't format correctly um what were those charts uh these are are Okay, this is location of JFK's head wound according to witnesses at Parkland compiled by Aguilar Crenshaw and I. Um, President Kennedy's head wound at Bethesda compiled by Aguilar and I. Um, but but you know you have these its names and then and then an area of the head and then an X that goes with with where they are. But but a friend of mine um, bought the the Kindle version, and I was just I was just really embarrassed by the way that that was formatted. But I had I didn't even know it was on Kindle. Um, if you were going to write a second book, would you write a second book? You know, I've thought about that. Um, I would like to do something that's more narrative than because my book is here's what Ron Jones said, here's what Paul Peters said, here's what. Dr. Crenshaw said, here's what um, I would like to do, maybe more of a thing of this is how it started, like Lifton did. Lifton uh, with, with uh, best evidence starts out with, you know, in 1965, I called Ike Alkins and, and you know, he does all this stuff and, and something more like that would possibly be it. But I just, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But that's if you just Google and and there are several Brad Parkers. Uh, one of them writes sex books. Um, mm. But if you Google Brad J. Parker, uh, JFK, or you go to the JFK Lancer website, John Kellens. If you if John Kellens stuff is archived, I used to write a lot for his uh, Fair Play website. Um, that that would get you my material. And it's jfklancer.com is where you can get that CD wrong. You're welcome anytime on the show. Any panels I do, I'd like to try and plan another one out there. Um, and we could talk off air about that as well, too. Um, but I appreciate the work that you've done. 
Um, I appreciate, I mean, I had Josh Keelan on here or Klein, I think his last name is, um, that was probably the last interview he'll ever do on this subject. It's not that the interview was bad. It was just, he said to me, I haven't done this in years and I haven't even talked about Neither it. Why. <laughs> yeah. And then after I posted his episode, he sold all of his Vincent Salandria's documents, gave it to the archives of the college down there, and he no longer has them anymore. And he was like, this is it. I'm wiping Hold my it. hands who with are, this. Who are you talking about? Josh Keelan. You, are you talking? Jo you mean John Kellen? John, yeah. I said his name wrong again. John, I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I really am. You were a great person to talk with. John's a great guy. I yeah. really hope John. John's a guy with, uh, a lot of interest um he's a good musician we used to run, he is and uh we used to run around dallas together because i was always drive i would drive down there and he would fly in so i'd be his ride from the conference to dealey plaza to copa to back to lancer to because we used to we used to bounce around according to who the speaker was at what conference and <laughs> and uh a couple of times i was his ride but uh no i really I knew he was knee deep in the Salandria thing. I, I certainly hope that that's not the case. Yeah. Um, he, when he was on here, he said he'd been out of it for a while. And then I saw a picture of him put up uh, the documents, giving it to the library, which is, I mean, it's good for anybody that wants to go to the library and access those as well too. It just sucks. Man. Who, did he, who did he give those to? Uh, whatever, wherever he lives, there's a college right by him where he did a lot of his research. Yeah, he, he lives, he lives in a major city in Colorado. So I don't know what the college is called. I could probably end up finding out which one it is, but I mean, because it's I've got this question of what I'm going to do with my stuff. Um, Send it to me. Uh, you know, that was actually suggested to me uh, a couple of days ago by a friend. I said, I'm doing this podcast. And the guy says, <laughs> this guy that's been a friend of mine since I was like five years old, he says, uh, well, you may have someone to send you documents to because uh, you may have some kind of kindred spirit there. And, Wait, who uh, is it? Who is it? Who is it? No, no, it's 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 just a, a family friend of mine. Okay. Um, that uh, no, this is this is a family friend of mine. But I've been worried about. You know, I'm at the the age I had to do CPR on my mother, and uh, since then I've. I've kind of, you know, you kind of, I'm at that age sort of questioning your own mortality and stuff. And you think, geez, I don't have a wife or kids. So if something were to happen to me tomorrow, someone's going to come in and just chuck this stuff. And uh, I need to figure out where, where things are going, but that has been suggested. That's funny that you mentioned I'll that. And, and who knows? It, it, it may happen. I know, I'll, I'll I don't put them all online for everyone to be able to access unless it's private stuff that you didn't want but i had a uh, stephen kinzer on here who wrote poisoner in chief about the mk ultra and sydney gottlieb who ran the whole thing and he goes i had to go to people's houses and they just had this in their garage and it's like this is the mk ultra documents that we need to expose this and just sitting in some person's garage and it's like oh my god thank god people are putting this stuff online because you got to think with all the stuff we do have online what about all the stuff we don't exactly how much stuff is disappearing because some somebody's garage got water in it or or you know some some mouse got in there and ate ate, ate some memo from the cia to, to the army or something you know but uh no you you'd mentioned uh wrapping up and uh, chatting off off air um and I don't mean to hold that up, but uh, no, certainly thank you very, very much for the invitation. I've enjoyed this immensely. 
And I will say to anybody listening, if you're contacted by this young man, uh, go ahead and do the show with uh, unhesitatingly say that. Uh, Brad, you're welcome back anytime, man. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. You can find Brad's links in the description below. Um, See you on the next episode.